We are Tim and Michelle Hill with Connect Over Coffee, and this is Midlife Realigned. A series of conversations about navigating all the things midlife, helping you live a meaningful second half. We are back to a more serious topic this week, and we're thrilled to welcome Emily Vass again to our conversation. Emily is an indigenous woman in death work. Her entire outlook on death, grief, and dying is different than most. She sees very few positive models of healthy grief in society and is really interested in better and more honest conversations all around death and grief. We're going to have two conversations with Emily centered around the things we can do to prepare for grief and how to handle grief when we're in the middle of it. We're excited to have this conversation with you today. Welcome back to the show, Emily. Hi, guys. Thank you so much. I always love being in a space where we can talk about this. <laughs> I imagine the spaces to talk about these topics are limited. It's not a conversation that most people want to have. You're right. However, when people find someone who they're willing to have that conversation with, they're all in right away because it's a sacred thing to talk about. There's definitely the curiosity out there. And after coming through the last two years, people are being forced to have the conversation younger and more often. Today, we're going to talk about what we can do to prepare ourselves because we are going to experience grief in our lives multiple times. We talked about this more fully in our last conversation, so I don't want to go too deep here. But for the sake of a listener who hasn't heard that episode, would you introduce yourself, share a little bit about why your perspective on death and grief is different than the mainstream American culture? Sure. So I am an indigenous woman. I'm mixed race. And so growing up biculturally in American society, I really got to see the whole spectrum of what grief, death, and dying looks like in the cultures between my families and then in the communities that we traveled through growing up. And also just being a child who was raised comfortably around death, I have a completely different outlook than most people. (laughs) (laughs) We are all going to experience grief and deal with loss in our lives from everyday losses like expectations not being met to job loss to the death of someone close to us. And These things are just part of the landscape of living life as a human, but I think we do a terrible job in mainstream American culture of addressing this inevitability. Our cultural approach to the reality of loss and grief is just to ignore it. Do you agree or disagree? How do you see it? Yeah, no, I definitely agree. It's it's a disservice that we have to our community where we're encouraging people Like, what is this three-day bereavement policy that's so common? That's absurd. It's completely ridiculous. And so, I mean, more progressive companies are giving three days for a family pet loss. So let's just put that into perspective. Like, we need capitalism kind of is running this, right? They don't want their grievers out for too long. But at the same time, coming out of 2020, it is now sitting squarely on the chief financial officers to make sure that their work staff gets proper mental health coming out of the last two years. So we're really in a unique position to start having these conversations because we've been forced to. And so I'm hoping to see a shift in our society as we collectively have gone through this historic change And we start having these conversations more openly because you're right. Like if you think about the typical workplace, even though our heart breaks for our coworkers, 
people tend to withdraw just because they don't want to say the wrong thing or they don't want to be that person that maybe they're having a good day. And if I ask them how they're doing, I'm going to make them spiral down, right? Like we haven't developed that script. And that's what the death positive movement and death workers and death doulas are doing is we're trying to help. Let's here's the language. Here's the people who are willing to talk about it. Yeah, I think so. COVID has made people realize their own mortality so much more than they ever have. You always figure you're going to lose your parents or your grandparents and you just try to avoid it. But now with COVID, it affected everybody at all ages. I think people really, you know, it bubbled up more. Before we move into another question, let me ask you to maybe give us a description of those terms since I don't think those terms are ones that we use in everyday conversation in mainstream culture. Things like death doula and death worker help people understand what those services are or or what the people who perform them do. Yeah, sure. So the more trendy term is death doula. You're seeing that come through CNN, ABC News, things like that. It's simply an or a end of life spectrum worker, somebody who's helping with elder care and helping to transition um, paperwork and things like that. Death doulas can do a variety of things. And the confusing thing is not every death doula does the same work. Some death doulas are focused on green burial options. Some death doulas are focused on helping you get medical aid to die and the right to die. So it that's it adds to the complexity of the conversation. <laughs> and then you have someone like myself who I call myself a death worker. Um, as a member of the BIPOC community, I don't like the word doula. I am not forced into this work. I willingly come into this space. And traditionally, because of the community I grew up in, I was literally groomed for this. This wasn't a career... I just decided to go do like my family has always done this work as their profession, if that makes sense. So, and then you have the terms that people are more familiar with funeral director, embalmer, medical examiner, and Hollywood's done really horrible things at stereotyping those terms. Some of the most caring, compassionate people I know are in those positions and we can all work together to help society. And so, um, yeah, I could go on forever about that. But there are, it, it's just starting to have those conversations, changing those terms, kind of like, let's not say we lost somebody. Children think we can go find them when we say that. Because when they lose their lovey, what do we tell them? Go find it. <laughs> Let's try not to use the word past. Like, let's take the stigma out of the words dead, dying, death. You know, be respectful of people's religious preferences, you know, transitioning. Um, But I think there is an overall taboo in even saying they're dead. My husband died. My dad died. Yeah, we want to use terms that don't feel so scary or painful, like they've passed away. All the whole spectrum of that language is sort of designed not to offend our sensibilities. Right. And what it does is it discourages us from facing the reality. So that's where I start is let's have conversations with kids. Honestly, let's use the words. Let's dead, dying. Is that what you would describe as the death positive movement? 
So the language we use would put it into a positive light rather than a negative one? Yes. So a lot of the death positive movement also, um, we see a lot of this happening with patient advocacy in hospitals is when the patients say, I'm done with treatment and the medical team or the families fighting back and saying, no, we have more options available. Or when the family isn't ready for treatment to stop. People like myself come in and we advocate for the patient and we say the patient is done. Here is where we can go from here. It doesn't have to be a long, scary process. There's options. But most people think we have life and death. We don't stop to really consider how we love our living into and through their death. Like, and that's the death positive movement is we're trying to come in and say, hey, there's a bigger area here where we still have quality of life and where we still have relationships. How do we honor the person who's chosen to end treatment? Yeah, gotcha. I feel like I need to think about that more deeply. Like I want to take these things that you're saying and chew on them for a while. <laughs> it's topic to, to process. It'll, it'll, it's okay. <laughs> I think that's a radical shift in how people think about it. If they even think about it, it's more likely that people want to avoid the conversations completely, which is kind of why we landed on this topic today. Actually, how can we prepare ourselves for loss in multiple ways? It doesn't just have to do with death, but I don't think we even do a good job of preparing our kids or even ourselves for the fact that loss is going to come, but it is going to come. So let's talk about options. If we're doing this poorly now, how can we instead prepare in advance for the reality of grief and loss? Let's break that question into two parts. First, what we need to believe or understand to better prepare. Sure. Well, so that's always a very interpersonal question because what happens, what I've witnessed with the families I've worked with, is it's not so much life and death is what scares them. They start to question their entire faith because their faith has told them to pray their way out of things. But their faith also tells you we're all dying. Like every faith will admit that there's an end. We're not spending a lot of time talking about that. So I think that's the first thing, right? Is recognizing 10 out of 10 of people die. 10 out of 10 people are going to bury somebody. If we admit that we're going to have these conversations at some point in our life, we can start practicing these conversations on different levels with different people. Because when we push it off, we're intensifying our chaos when the transition happens. Because all we've done is practiced pushing it off. So that's why it's important to start having a conversation um, starter help you at your place of worship or within your family or at your workplace. Having someone else come in and start the conversation is huge <laughs> because nobody intuitively wants to talk about this. You don't meet your girlfriend for lunch or brunch and say, hey, did you do your death planner? I got this really cute one. <laughs> nobody does that. And I'm not expecting no. it ever will happen. <laughs> So one thing that we can do then is help create spaces where those conversations can happen. 
for example, these podcasts, right? <laughs> I, or within our places of worship or within our community centers, we can at least begin to have those conversations about what that might look like. Another thing I was thinking about in response to what you said was not only is it preparing ourselves for loss, but just practicing having hard conversations because loss and grief aren't the only things that are difficult. And if we have a habit of putting off and ignoring difficult things in general, it's just going to bleed over into death and grief situations, making a topic that's already treated as taboo even less likely to be talked about or dealt with. The other thing to consider is I think oh, the myth out there about death workers and death doulas are we're not spiritual religious people. We're doing some black magic voodoo stuff. And there are there are death workers and death doulas that specifically work within their own faith. So a Catholic, like it can you can find a Catholic death worker. You can find a Protestant, someone with a Protestant background, you can find someone who's agnostic or atheist. Like we're all like, we can help you find the person that fits. Right. So it doesn't feel as uncomfortable because if you're already having an uncomfortable conversation with someone whose background you don't really get, you really do need to have someone that you have that visual rapport with instantly. So I think that's another thing is, is finding someone in your community who lives your values already, right? Like that person is going to help you have an uncomfortable conversation a lot easier than meeting a new friend who's introducing a new concept. So you already have that base connection of the faith or the community or whatever, and it makes it easier to have that conversation. That makes that makes sense. We've been focusing on grief in this series, but when we think about death itself, are there things that would be helpful for us that would inform our own perspective towards death? You coming to it from a really different background than mainstream America that would help those from the mainstream culture maybe look at death in a less taboo way? Well, I think I think there's a few things. I think what what you're leading into is mainstream America tends, unless you're in the counseling or helping fields, they're probably the exception. But otherwise, most people use grief and mourning together interchangeably. We, we need to keep that separation. We can have grief and we can have mourning and there's a difference. Right. And so recognizing when we experience grief for all these many things that you said, divorce, job loss, um, any kind of other big disappointments that we've really had to struggle with, we still have grief for those things. Mourning is the action of that grief, is, is the movement of that grief, right? Like what, how do we mourn for the things that we're grieving for? And so that is, is a, something to consider. Right. Like if you're in grief because you didn't get that job position, your morning action might be to spend more time in education so that you get that opportunity. Right. So you use that that energy as a motivator. Right. And then if we look at it with the death transitioning, we can still grieve, but I can still go train for a 5K or a half marathon in my morning activities like what are those healthy morning activities that help me process my grief 
So that's not completely different than processing any other strong emotion, because we don't teach our kids to do that either. Tim and I, we've had these conversations that we're not teaching our kids how to deal with things like loneliness. We don't teach them how to deal even with things like joy. So a lot of the same activities or actions that we can use to process regular, normal, everyday emotions, we could also use as morning activities to process grief, right? Yes. 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 Exactly. And that's it. It's healthy choices and it's everything in moderation. But we just tend to see when it comes to grief due to death, American society makes allowances and excuses and enables a lot of unhealthy behaviors. And that's where a lot of people in the helping fields, the counselors and the practitioners, you know, like we don't want our living to to send themselves in a downward spiral and their families rooting them on because they're like, leave them alone. They're grieving. So what do you think are the most common negative spirals that you see people get into? Well, you know, the difficult thing, and, and it makes sense, getting out of bed. We, when we are hit hard with the loss of someone, right? Like that's something that you have to delicately weigh for that individual. Like what is, they need to stay in bed and rest? Yes. How much of it, you know, do they, do they have a history of depression? How much of staying in bed is a detriment to their own medical history? Right. And so this is why it's important to know, like, if we're all going to be future grievers, we need to know who our safety support is around us. Right. Like I know who can walk in my room and tell me to get out of bed and who's going to get stabbed if they do that. Right. We all have certain people in our lives. <laughs> you know, we're going to respect certain people when they come to us and say, hey, Today's the day you're getting out and getting a shower and we're going for a walk around the neighborhood. And if I have to listen to you complain the entire time, bring it. I've heard your mouth for 20 years, right? Like, <laughs> but you know, it's, it, and that's why it's so personal is because when you look at your grievers, you have to consider what was that person's baseline before it and and how hurtful it is to bring in somebody to help guide them and direct them if they don't have that rapport in the relationship right we don't want the bossy neighbor coming over opening the blinds and tearing off the blankets that's not never going to go well <laughs> right but our favorite cousin or our best girlfriend those are the ones we send in to hug the porcupines right <laughs> hug the porcupines i like that Who's going to the pork a porcupine hugger, right? Like, yeah, and they're all out drawing straws to see who has to go in to hug the porcupine. <laughs> Not me. So thinking about that further, that says to me that one of the best things that we could do to prepare for any kind of mourning or loss is to learn to process our emotions in healthy ways. Because if our baseline is depression, not getting out of bed, or we're drinking to numb ourselves... And that's what we've trained ourselves to do to cope with the emotions that we can't handle. Then that's just going to be worse when we experience a huge loss and we don't know how to deal with it. We're going to go to those things that we've done before to either numb ourselves or to cope with what we don't know how to handle. 
And so if we learn healthy ways to approach processing emotions in smaller everyday circumstances, then we'll turn to those existing healthier habits when the big, scary, difficult, hard emotions come, right? Exactly. Yes, yes, exactly. So um, so my background is mental mental health. And we always had safety plans when someone struggles with a mental health diagnosis. We always would have a safety plan or a safety net of action, something that someone in their health could say, these are the people I trust. These are the people I'm willing to do these activities with. Right. And I've developed a model very similar to that, that when I walk my families through their death planner or their comfort care guide, we have these conversations so that when chaos happens, because we know when when we're hit with grief, we forget how to breathe. When we are given that knowledge, our loved one is gone. We forget how to function. Right. And so it's important to have that safety net, that safety plan already set up. Sort of like all of the other plans that you think of when you're preparing for a death, like when your mom passed away and all the arrangements were already made, you didn't have to deal with that in the midst of your grief. That was such a blessing that we weren't expecting. My sister and I, we thought we had to meet with the funeral director and the night before we were wondering, well, What's she going to be buried in? What songs would she want? What what would she like this arrangement? What Bible verses would she like? During the meeting, he pulls out a sheet of paper and says, she wants to be buried in this outfit. These are the Bible verses that she wants. Here's the songs that she wants. We were like, huh? What? It was a huge relief. It really, really was. People are kind of familiar with that idea. That's a generally accepted, not that we do it often, but people are aware that funeral service arrangements can be done in advance. But listening to you speak, Emily, today, I imagine that there's a whole realm of other things that we might not be aware of that we should think about and prepare in advance that will help everyone who loves us. Exactly. Well, and then there's there's things that you can do. Like my families who use the Comfort Care Workbook, They've come back to me and they said in their grief, in their overwhelm, they can remind themselves they took care of their loved one exactly the way they wanted cared for. Right. Because towards the end of life, we lose the ability to communicate. And that's where the caregivers and the family are like, did I do enough to keep them comfortable? Did I do this? Right. But if you can look at your loved one's handwriting and their conversations or their tape recorded conversations that they had with someone and say, this is exactly what they did. And I made sure it happened. It gives you that reassurance, right? Because that's what grievers do. We play back all the what ifs and torture ourselves, right? And so if we can know that we're going to walk in this grieving space, we can prepare for it. We just have to be willing to start having those conversations that nobody's used to having. It does give you a much better sense of peace and closure. I guess, you know, if you know that you took care of them in the way that they wanted them to be taken care of, following their wishes, and I don't know how to explain it. It's been a while since I thought about it, but it was just a peaceful feeling. It's it's like we knew what mom wanted and she would be happy and that made us happy. Well, and it diffuses it, when there's a plan of any kind, it diffuses the disruption between family members. Because if we have someone who passes and it's not clear if they wanted cremation, 
Well, it then goes to a majority. So if there were four biological children, three of them have to agree. And then that just creates more chaos and disruption in a grieving family. And that gets super intense, super quick. So yeah, that's why there's so much relief. Like, even though we don't really realize like, hey, we're missing out on that. We're thankful that those decisions were made. We're thankful that we don't have to have that kind of decision fatigue in running through the what ifs. The other side of that spectrum was my dad when he passed away, probably 15 years prior to mom. He had no plan. He had no wishes. We had no idea what he wanted. And it, it was bad. I mean, the minister who performed the service was not anybody we knew. He didn't know dad. He called dad by the wrong name a couple times. I have a horrible memory of that funeral service of dad's because I don't know if that's what he wanted. We had to guess. We had to assume. And, and I think that experience made mom say, I'm not going to have my kids do that again when it happens to me. So she learned by example, bad example, but an example of what not to do. So as we wrap up this conversation, let me ask you one final thing about this whole planning idea. At what point should people start having these specific planning conversations? Because we don't know when we'll die. It's not like we get a six-month warning bell. People die at all ages. So at what point and how do we step into this idea of making plans? That's a great question because it's never going to be a comfortable time to bring it up. Teenagers in most states are having to identify when they go get their driver's permit. Are they an organ donor? starting right then, right? Because if we're preparing them and they have to make that decision, it's a perfect segue into this. Like having that conversation with my 17 year old son, even though he's not a driver, we still had that conversation when he got his state ID. We're like, hey, you're gonna be traveling with some of your teammates in a car. If you get into an accident, what do you want? He admitted he wasn't ready for that conversation and he wanted us to make the choices. And I said, okay, when you're 18, we're gonna, I'm gonna ask you again. So we have neurodivergent thinking in, in our house, so it's a little different, but I would encourage every family, driver's license is a good time to have that conversation, right? You can plant the seed. Right, and, and then it makes it easier to have that conversation every other time. For example, when we're getting married, our partners now become our spokesperson. Do they really know what we want, right? And so when we're, and when we change marriages and when we change partners, <laughs> that's a good time. Or when we hear about the tragedy in our community, my community just had a horrible situation where three people were injured in a plane crash, a small plane crash. And it's the communities talking about these people who three of them are now in ICU. And so it's like the community is buzzing about it. It's the time to interject. Hey, these resources are available. What have you and your family decided? You're right. It's an accident. Nobody saw it coming. Right. And so it and their families are flying in from all over the place. And and so it, it's important to be that person at the family function. <laughs> to be that one. Well, somebody else is going to bring it up. Hey, did you hear so-and-so passed? Hey, did you, somebody else is going to bring that up. It's important to be like, I follow this crazy person on Instagram. 
Um, she's kind of entertaining, right? Like to have a leeway, be like, have you heard of this? Did you know this, this, right? Like to be brave enough to step into that space. Doesn't mean you're going to have a full on conversation that day, but you're laying the breadcrumbs, right? And so that's what I would say is when you see the opportunity, you know, even if you just overhear a conversation and you go home and talk to your spouse or to your partner, or you go home and talk to your kids, your adult kids and say, Hey, I don't really have my stuff together or I have a notebook with some things and it's in the closet on the right side. (laughs) I don't know that I would have thought of that. Just the idea of having quick conversations and laying those breadcrumbs that I'm a safe person to talk to about this, or I'm willing to go to these places in conversations. Because a lot of times I think in our lives, there may not be many safe people, people who are willing to go there. And that's one simple thing that we can do, make the people around us aware that we are willing to listen or to have those conversations. Absolutely. I do that a lot in the suicide awareness groups that that I run in is, is we teach people to say, I'm a safe person. I may not have the answers, but I can help you find the safer place than me, right? Like it's letting them know who their helpers are yeah. and it's, it's being willing to step out and identify yourself. Yeah, I love that. All right. I think let's wrap this conversation for this week. And we'll continue this conversation next week. Today's episode is brought to you by an organization that means a lot to us, Authenticos. We traveled with Authenticos a few years ago to help facilitate an art camp for kids in rural Guatemala. And I would say that that trip literally changed your life in several ways. It really did. It. I'd never been to a foreign country that, that far away. I've been to Canada, but um, <laughs> I didn't go to the areas of Canada that has problems. But I, I saw a culture from a different way. I saw the kids in a different situation and I, 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 it was beautiful landscape. And it really impacted me in a way that I can have impact on on kids and other cultures. And I didn't want to come home. You didn't. We had to drag you home, actually. It was really shocking. (laughs) Authenticos believes that creativity is healing. Many people live in stress, loneliness, a lack of a sense of purpose. Creativity provides us an outlet to process life. Like we talked about, learning to process emotions in today's episode, that's exactly what they do. They facilitate transformative experiences by hosting creative workshops. They invest in under-resourced communities and inspire people to serve locally and globally. And during the pandemic, their work has taken on new projects because it used to be that they only served in Guatemala, but now they are serving new groups both here in the U.S. and abroad. They recently received a pledge of $5,000 in matching funds. So every bit donated today is worth double. We would love to have them receive those matching funds. So if you give today, it's like you're giving twice as much as you really gave because they get those matching funds. Right. And you can check out what they do and make a donation at connectovercoffee.link backslash give. Now that takes you directly to their website. We don't do anything with the transfer of money, but we just thought it would be an easier link for you to remember. It's connectovercoffee.link backslash give. Thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. If you'd like to connect further with Emily, you can find her on Instagram at Native Death Diva or on her website at NativeDeathDiva.com. If today's episode helped you at all, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of someone right now who would benefit from having this conversation about preparing for loss and then share this with them. Until next time, stay caffeinated, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>